How are we doing? Yeah? Well, if we've never met, my name is Brady, and I like to introduce myself for the first time as an imperfect follower of Jesus. I also get to serve as one of the pastors here at Mosaic Church, and I am really thankful to be here. I'm so grateful that I get to do what I get to do, uh, because this, this book here um, that says on some of them the Bible, some of them the Holy Bible, this is an incredible book because I believe that it reveals the beauties of God's character and his life-giving way. And the depths of it are just unsearchable. And it blows my mind all the time what God has done in this book. Now, if you've ever started to read through this book, if you've ever made it all the way through this book, there were probably times where you have thought to yourself, I, this doesn't sound like God's character or this, this way that he's telling me, it doesn't seem very life-giving. You don't have to raise your hand, but there have been times that I have read and I've thought, oh, like there are passages that if I were to have a conversation with someone who didn't know Jesus, I might be a little bit embarrassed by. Now, there's a number of reasons why we might have that reaction. One of the reasons is because we live in a culture and there are cultures all over the world and there've been many cultures throughout the history of humanity and all cultures are very different. But sometimes our cultures being as formational as they are, I mean, every culture is so good at forming its people into its image, making its people think the way that it thinks, value the things that it values, not value the things that it doesn't. And so if you have been shaped by your culture, which we all have, sometimes the Bible says some things that aren't in line with what the culture says. Sometimes the Bible values things that the culture doesn't value. And sometimes the Bible says these things are not good that the culture actually values. And so if you have been formed by your culture and the Bible confronts something that the culture values, it can be hard to see that it's life-giving or hard to see that it's good or beautiful. Another reason is because every single one of us has desires. And every single one of us does things that we like, that we enjoy, that we think give us life. And sometimes the Bible will teach things that confront our desires, will teach things that are contrary to what we want, what we enjoy, what we like to do. And whenever you come across something like that, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, at least at first, to see it as life-giving and beautiful. But sometimes, sometimes you read a passage of scripture and it doesn't come across like the character of God or it doesn't come across as life-giving because you might misunderstand what it says. Like what you think it says may not be what it's actually teaching. And so we got to do a little work. So I, I just want to, I want to just help you understand this. And so I gave, I'm giving a little example here. I, I wrote a hypothetical letter to my friend, Joel. Uh, and, and I want to read it together with you. Joel is one of the pastors at Mosaic and we're good friends. And so I've got it, got it up here and I'm just going to read it for you. Uh, and, and it says this, Joel, because that's who it's to. Joel, I had a few thoughts at any time this morning in regards to our marathon this past Thursday. I'm not sure how far y'all went on without me. Some of this may sound like freezers in the back of Target, and I don't want to end up on the quote page. I like where the structure's going. Just be mindful how much food is on your plate. Hope you didn't flush out all the good stuff in my absence. 
I'm having second thoughts about KD. Don't pull the trigger. I'm not sure we're on the same page. Why am I worried? You taught me everything I know. I'm thankful to be your partner in crime. Who knew Bears and Seminoles could get along so well? Give my regards to Captain Hooks, colon, hyphen, bracket. (laughs) Now, just maybe a show of hands. Did anyone here find any part of that letter confusing? Okay, so everybody in here found at least part of it confusing. Now, let me just tell you this. Before we look at this letter, I I want you to know that when Joel saw this for the first time, I didn't have to explain one thing to him. He knew exactly what I meant in everything that I said. Every sentence that I used, every reference that I referenced, he understood it. He got it. It made sense to him. Because Joel and I have 10 plus years of friendship together. We have shared experiences. We've read a lot of the same books. We share a lot of the same stories. We have a lot of the same friends. We have what I would call a shared friendship shorthand. And this happens with all of your friendships. You begin to develop a language shorthand with one another. So I just want to just explain to you what, what I meant by this letter. So uh, I had a few thoughts at any time this morning. Now that sounds like bad English grammar, doesn't it? At any time? You, you don't say that. Well, Joel knew that I was at Anytime Fitness because I work out, obviously, right? Except for my legs, right? You're like, do you ever do leg day? I do. It, does, it doesn't work. Um, so I had a few thoughts at any time this morning in regards to our marathon this past Thursday. I'm not sure how far you went on without me. Now, y'all... That's the plural form of you if you are from Texas, okay? My parents are from Texas, and so that's why I use that. Now, it could sound like we ran a big race the other day. If you know Joel and I, you know we did not run 26.2 miles. And if you know Joel and I, you know that I didn't drop out early if he was going to keep on running. Like, that is not what I'm talking about. We actually had a, a, a meeting that lasted all day long, and so we called it a marathon meeting, and then, and then I had to leave 30 minutes early, and so they continued to talk about stuff after I left. Now, some of this may sound like freezers in the back of Target. Who knows what freezers in the back of Target sound like? Does anybody know what those sound like? No one's ever worked at Target? So that's not what it's about. One time, Joel and I, we were at Black Friday shopping, and we were standing in line at Target, and we got into this argument about whether Target has freezers in the back or not. And one of us argued that they absolutely had freezers in the back of Target. And the other one of us, me, argued that he did not have enough information to even know. I wasn't arguing that there weren't freezers. I was just arguing that you don't know. You don't have enough information to know whether there are freezers in the back of Target. You haven't been there. You haven't worked there. You don't know. And he argued that he did have enough information. And so we use that phrase a lot to talk about scenarios like this. Like not having enough information. What I was saying is since I was gone and y'all continue to talk about things, anything I write in the rest of this letter may sound like I don't know what I'm talking about because I don't have enough information. And I said, I don't want to end up on the quote page. He's got a quote page and it's fantastic. I like where the structure is going. Just be mindful of how much food is on your plate. I hope you didn't flush out all the good stuff in my absence. It can sound like I'm talking about what he's eating and then what's happening after he eats. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about his capacity, how much capacity he has to take on all of the stuff that he has in the leadership role that he's been given, to make sure that he's not taking on too many responsibilities. Now, flush out, in in our vernacular, what we actually say when we're talking about an idea and we're getting into all the details, we say you flesh it out. That's the phrase 
Okay, but we have a friend who says, flush it out. And so sometimes just for fun, we say, flush it out. Even though we know that's not what you're supposed to say. And so it's just kind of a, a funny inside joke between the two of us. Um, uh, I'm having second thoughts about KD. Don't pull the trigger. I'm thankful to be your partner in crime. It can sound like we're planning to kill somebody. We're not. I mean, because KD could be Kevin Dennis, one of our elders. It could be uh, Kevin Dunn, one of our fellow staff members. Or it could be that we're looking to hire a kids director. And that's what we're talking about. But you don't know because you don't have the context. You weren't there. But Joel knew. He knew exactly what I was talking about. Give my regards to Captain Hooks. We've never called him this, but Joel knew exactly what I was talking about. Our good friend and lead pastor, Renault, when he taught for a long time, he, he had this, this gesture, just, gesture? He'd had, he had the, the joker and a deck of cards. No, he, he had this gesture where he took his, his fingers like this and he would just do this a lot. And we called him his hooks. And so if I referred to him as Captain Hooks, he would know that's what I was talking about. Now, for you, it took a lot of explanation to get there because you weren't in this scenario. Most of you don't know me very well. Most of you don't know Joel very well. So there's a lot of work that has to be done for you to understand what's going on. Now think about this in terms of the Bible. So the Bible was written at least 2000 years ago. That's a long span of time to bridge. It was written in a completely different cultural context. It was written in different languages, not English, in Greek and Hebrew and a little bit in Aramaic which is very different. And there are a lot of obstacles when it comes to translation. So there's a lot of work we have to do to make sure that we are accurately interpreting the scriptures. Let me give you some examples. So I don't know if you know this in 2 Corinthians, Paul commands us to greet each other with a holy kiss. How many people walked in here and greeted each other with a holy kiss? Anybody kiss anyone else in here? Okay, thank goodness. But here's the deal. That's a command that Paul gives and we don't obey it. So are we in sin because we don't obey that command? Well, what about this? In every church line, you know, budget, should there be a line item for tattoo removal, right? I mean, do I need to get the church to pay for the removal of the butterfly I've got on my lower back? Like, like is that something the church needs to do? Because Leviticus says, Leviticus says that you can't get, you shouldn't get tattoos. So is that a sin? Do we need to remove all of our tattoos if we're Christians? What do we do? What about this one? In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, women should pray with their head covered and men shouldn't pray with their head covered. So as we gather together and we do corporate prayer together, should we hand out hats to girls and then pause and make sure guys all take off their hats before we pray? But we don't do that. So are we in sin? Are we not? How do we handle this? What do we do about this? First Timothy, later on in the letter that we're actually talking about tonight, that we've been talking about for a while, Paul tells Timothy, because you get sick to your stomach, you should have some wine. Now, who in here, when you feel sick to your stomach, do you drink more alcohol? Any, anyone? You're like, no, that was the problem. That's why I feel sick to my stomach. Right? We, we don't do that. So what we have to do is we have to do the good work of faithful biblical interpretation. And especially when we are studying New Testament letters, because when we're studying New Testament letters, we are reading someone else's mail. Have you ever thought about it like that before? You are literally reading someone else's mail. Have you ever, ever read mail before? Anybody ever written like a handwritten letter? Have, you, have we all done that? Okay, we still have some people that write handwritten letters. 
think about it like this. If you've been sitting at a table with your buddy and then you see a text message pop up on their phone and you accidentally read it, accidentally, and you misinterpret what the conversation's about because you haven't seen the entire thread, right? You've just seen a little piece. You've just gotten a snapshot. Have you ever listened to someone on the phone? You've overheard one side of a phone conversation and you, you don't know what's going on, but you make some assumptions based on just the one side that you had, that you heard. Uh, I was, I was, oh, I wasn't watching, but my wife was watching I Love Lucy the other day. And uh, it was the episode uh, where Lucy thinks Ricky, her husband, is sick of her and wants to get rid of her. And then she walks in on him having a phone conversation. He's talking about some girl that's in his show that she's been around for a long time and it's time to replace her. But she only hears one side of the phone conversation and thinks he's trying to get rid of her. So she's trying to, he's trying to kill her. And so, you know, you know, have all these, these fun things that happen. But this kind of things happen, right? Right? When you overhear one side of a phone conversation, you don't know all that's going on. So you have to do some work to figure it out. So as we read a New Testament letter, and really all of scripture, we need to do some work. We need to figure out who is writing this letter. We need to know who this person is writing the letter to. We need to know the, 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 the context that is going on in that scenario and what's the situation or scenario that initiated the letter, that prompted the writing of this letter. So let's do a little bit of that. We're in the, the book of First Timothy, which is a letter written by who? Paul, yeah. And Paul was an early church planning missionary. And if you know anything about Paul, what you need to know about Paul is Paul was a Hebrew Bible nerd to the highest degree. How many proud nerds do we have in here? We got some proud nerds? Yeah. I, probably a lot of people in here have some level of nerddom in regards to something, whether it's Disney nerddom or maybe it's Marvel, maybe it's Star Wars, maybe it's video games, maybe it's comic books. I don't know. There are a number of different things that you might have a deep level of nerddom about, that you're really passionate about this information and you know too much. That's basically how I define my nerddom. Any area where I know too much that it's just not socially appropriate, right? That's, that's like, that's where I would define my levels of nerddom. Pa Paul's level of Hebrew Bible nerddom would put any anyone in here to shame. Like it was the language that he spoke. It was the air that he breathed. The Hebrew Bible or what we would call the Old Testament, he knew it backwards and forwards. He knew it inside and out. He knew it so well. So Paul has a wealth of information that you and I typically don't have because we don't do that. We don't spend time there. We spend time on TikTok right? We, we, we know the latest trend or the latest phrases or real, be real or whatever the app is that everyone's using these days. Like that's what we spend our time doing. That's what we are integrated in. But he was integrated into deeply into the Hebrew Bible. Now he's writing the letter to someone. Who's he writing to? Timothy. Now, how long did Paul and Timothy know each other at this point? Anyone know? A long time, more than 10 years. So for more than 10 years, Paul and Timothy had been very close. Paul had discipled him. He had mentored him. They had traveled around the world together. They planted churches together. They raised up leaders together. They discipled people together. They wrote letters together. Now, if there's one thing you need to know about Timothy is Timothy would do anything Paul said. How do I know that he would do anything that Paul said? Well, at the very beginning of their relationship, Timothy, as a young adult, allowed Paul to circumcise him. And so after that, there's nothing off the table. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if you're going to allow someone to do that, you'll do anything for him. So anything Paul said, read, Timothy's like, I'll read that. 
Anytime Paul said jump, he said how high? Like Timothy did everything that Paul wanted him to do. So their mentorship was not like a lot of our mentorships where we have someone who's like, hey, read this book. And you're like, ah, I might skim it. The title. Yeah, I mean, like, like that was not the case. Like they had a shared friendship language shorthand. So when Paul writes something, Timothy knows exactly what he's talking about because they have that same knowledge base of the Hebrew scriptures, of the Bible, of God, of Jesus, right? They are so connected. When Paul writes a letter, Timothy knows what he's saying, even if he only says a couple things that are kind of an allusion to something else. Timothy knows. Now he's writing to Timothy because he left Timothy in what uh, city? Ephesus, yeah, in the city of Ephesus, which was a very important city in that day and age, but also a very important church planting church. Churches all over modern day Turkey were being planted from this church. It was a very influential church. And some false teachers had arisen in this church. Now, if false teachers are corrupting this church, that's bad. But because this church was a church planting church and it was influential to other churches, their false teaching was likely influencing other churches. So Paul left his best person, Timothy, there in Ephesus to confront these false teachers. Now, there's some things that we know about the false teachers. Uh, We got a slide about it. Um, Here's some things that we know about the false teachers, right? These false teachers were, uh, they had some interesting motivation, right? They were seeking attention and they were seeking financial gain. Okay, they wanted people to gather around, to listen to, to their teaching, to think their teaching was impressive, and then to get money from those people. That's what their motivation was. So if you're acting, you're like, what's my motivation? I'm a false teacher. Well, your motivation is attention and financial gain, okay? Now, they were targeting specific individuals. Right, if you're trying to get wealthy, who are you targeting? Wealthy people. Yeah, and if you're trying to convince them that you know what you're talking about in regards to the scriptures, what type of people do you want? Uneducated people. People who don't know what they're talking about in regards to the scriptures, right? Because if you don't know about the scriptures and I tell you that I do and I say some really interesting, cool facts, you're gonna be wowed and impressed that I know these things that I may or may not actually know, but you don't know because you're not educated. Now, Maybe we can rewind to a time where everyone believed they were an expert. And, you know, if, if I read half an article, I was just as smart as a doctor. There, that probably never happened in our history in the last couple of years or not. But maybe, pretend for a second, that's real. But this is the thing. Like, a lot of times we think we're an expert when we're really not. So the false teachers were targeting people who were not educated in the scriptures and they were wealthy. That's who they were looking for. And the way that they went about getting them on their side, making them their disciples, was they used tailored biblical speculation. They were using the Bible and they were speculating. And we know it's the early chapters of Genesis because in the beginning of the letter, Paul says, myth and genealogy. Now, myth is not things that are untrue. It's a style of writing. And the style of writing myth, you find it concentrated in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And you also happen to find loads of genealogies in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. So when Paul writes to Timothy about myth and genealogies, Timothy knows, oh, Genesis 1 through 11. And they're speculating, making up new things about Genesis 1 through 11. And they're trying to make these people like them, follow them and give them money. So what do you think they're going to teach? Things that the people want to hear, 
right? Paul says at one point in another letter, he says, he says, you want to gather people who are in sin are gathering for themselves uh, teachers that will itch their ears, that will tell them exactly what they want to hear. Those are the teachers you're going to accumulate for yourself if you're immature. And so this is what these teachers are doing. These are the false teachers. Now, Paul in Chapter one of First Timothy, and we're gonna we're gonna do a little summary of chapter one in First Timothy. If you'll show us that next slide, that'll be really helpful. Before we go into chapter two, chapter one of First Timothy, Paul says this: Timothy, confront the false teachers. And when you're doing this, remember that the aim of our charge or the reason God established the church was so that we would spread his divine love, his biblical love. We call it agape. That's the Greek word for love in the New Testament. And it's a love that is giving of yourself sacrificially for the good of the other. That's what this kind of love is. Giving of yourself sacrificially for the good of the other. And Paul says, this is what we're doing as a church. We are called to, and we are established for the spreading out of the love that Jesus demonstrated for us. That is the aim of our charge And then he says, Timothy, the false teachers, they're not handling the Bible biblically. So you should handle the Bible biblically or handle it scripturally. Like when you look at the scriptures, they teach you how to handle them. The false teachers are not doing that. They are speculating about all kinds of things, right? They're coming up with new knowledge that no one has ever heard before. Don't do that. Handle the Bible biblically. And then he says, the gospel, it includes the worst of the worst. And then Paul raises his hand and says, I'm the worst of the worst. It even includes me. And that gives God glory. So praise King Jesus. So this is chapter one of 1 Timothy. Now, as we move into chapter two of 1 Timothy, well, we see Paul beginning with this giant umbrella of love. And he says, I want y'all to pray for everyone, especially those people who have made themselves your enemies. I want you to love even the people who have made themselves your enemies. And I want you to do it by praying for them. And there are three kinds of prayer that Paul lays out. I want you to to not just bring up their name in prayer. That's supplications. That's pray about the scenario or pray about the people. But he also says, I want you to intercede for them. That means I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray for their blessing. I want you to pray for their good. And then he says, thanksgivings. I want you to actually thank God for these people. So the people who have made themselves your enemies, pray for them, Love them through prayer by praying about them, praying for them, and then thanking God for them. This is what we're called to do. And this is the umbrella that Paul gives before he enters into this next section. And what he's going to begin to do now is talk about some of the disciples of these false teachers. There's some some men and some women that were disciples of these false teachers, and they were embracing the teaching of their, 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 their mentors, and they were causing a lot of division within the church. So go ahead and grab your Bible. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And keep this in mind real quick. Right before we enter into this, I, I, I want to talk about the relationship of culture and truth. Because as we're trying to study the scriptures and, and, and figure out what do they mean? What is God teaching? You need to understand the proper relationship of culture to truth. 
Now, the way that we often think about the relationship of culture to truth is like it's a spectrum. And once again, I've got a slide for that. We've got this presentation to be brought to you by Photoshop. Okay, so we've got a slide for it. Oftentimes, this is the way that we think about culture and truth. It's on this spectrum. They are on opposite ends of the spectrum. So they are about as far apart as you could actually ever get. So if we've got culture over here, what you see is as you go away from it, it actually changes color. And then truth is over here on this side. And so if you think about culture and truth in this way, and you want to know what's true, you want to get as far away from culture as possible, right? So the farther you get from culture, the more closer you get to truth. And the farther you get from truth, the more closely you get to culture. If this is the way that you think about the relationship of culture to truth. Now, what this can do is it can produce fear. Right. If culture and truth are opposite, then I can be afraid that culture is going to integrate me into its way, and then I will not be with the truth. And you could fear it in the other way. Maybe you could say culture and truth are opposites, and so if I want to be able to get into the culture and be effective evangelically, right? Evangelically? Is that a word? Sounds like an angel to me. (laughs) Utilizing evangelism then I need to look exactly like the culture. Otherwise, they're not going to accept me. But I just think that's an, that's an unhelpful way to think about the relationship of culture to truth. And this will become apparent today. So I've got another slide for us. This, I think, is a better picture. You've got truth. And truth is in the middle. It is big. It's bold. It doesn't move. It is never moved. It has always remained the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. God never changes. So God's truth never changes. But you know what changes? Culture changes all the time, right? Our culture, think about our culture 50 years ago. Very different. Think about our culture 200 years ago. Very different. Think about cultures around the world. Very different. So what happens is cultures throughout the world over time have changed and shaped. Sometimes they look more like truth. Sometimes they look less like truth. Sometimes they're closer to truth. Sometimes they're farther farther away from truth. But the point is this, distance from culture is not a good indicator of truth. Distance from culture is not a good indicator of what is and is not true. So how do we discover what is true? Well, the scriptures has taught us how to study them, how to interpret them. As Paul said, use scripture scripturally. One thing we do is we study scripture prayerfully. Jesus said to us that the spirit of God who is given to us as we become a follower of Jesus, that he's the one who leads us into all truth, that he's the one that will remind us of the things that Jesus said. And so we need to study scripture prayerfully so that the spirit of God will do what he does and enlighten our minds to what is true. But we don't just study scripture by ourselves. Although we should study our scripture by ourselves, but not only by ourselves. We should also study scripture in community. But we shouldn't just study scripture in this community, but in the global Christian community. And not just the global Christian community, but the global Christian community historically. As we said, God never changes, right? God's truth never changes, right? So what God reveals to Christians 2,000 years ago, he's not going to change today. So the way to accurately interpret scripture, one good way to know that you're on the right track is if you're interpreting it the way that Christians have always interpreted the scriptures throughout time, throughout geographic region. 
right? That is a good indicator that you are on the right track with what the Spirit is actually saying through the Scriptures. We study them prayerfully, communally, historically. That's the way to figure out what is the Scripture teaching. With that in mind, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul writes this, he says this, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So you have a group of disciples of these false teachers and they are imitating their false teachers and they are speaking out the things that their false teachers are speaking out. And you have other people who obviously are saying, wait, wait, that's not right. And it's causing division. And they're having arguments and they're getting heated and angry over what's going on in the teaching, right? Like you can see it. And Paul's saying, we can't be divided in the church because they will know that we are Jesus' followers by our love for one another. They will know we are his by our unity. And so Paul says, instead of getting angry and having all kinds of disputes about it, pray for one another. And in the context that he had just said just recently, pray about the scenario, pray for the people beyond their team and thank God for them. This is what I call you to do rather than arguing. Now, what we need to do as we're interpreting scripture is we take a passage and we figure out what is this saying? But it's also good to learn what is the principle underneath it? Because sometimes things work out in a context differently than they work out in a different context. So in one context, Paulson can say, kiss one another. In a different context, we could say, that's actually not loving because we might spread COVID, right? I mean, you know, like, like different contexts, there are different ways to work out the principle that's underneath. So I think a good principle for what Paul is saying is instead of uh, arguing and dividing over speculation, love people through prayer, right? Love one another through prayer rather than dividing over speculation. Or maybe say, Care about the person in front of you rather than making sure they agree with your opinion on truth. Love the person in front of you rather than convincing them of your position. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't have conversations. It doesn't mean that you can't even have passionate conversations because truth matters. Truth is a good thing. Truth is important. But at the point where you're getting angry and dividing, you have ceased to love the other person. And Paul says, instead of getting angry over these speculations, pray for one another. You think our culture could get a little bit of that? You think we could use some of that? Rather than get all kind of angry about these things that are not the main thing, love one another through prayer. Pray for one another's blessing. Thank God for one another. Man, that would help the church out a whole lot. He goes on. And now he begins to talk about a group of women who were following these false teachers. He says this, likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. What's Paul saying here? There's a group of women who are following these false teachers and they are wealthy. And what they're doing is they're displaying their wealth in how they present themselves and how they dress with costly attire, with gold, with pearls, with jewelry. 
And what's happening in that church is they are dividing, they're causing division because there's some really wealthy people and there's some people who are not wealthy. And these wealthy people, by displaying their, their wealth in the way that they are, they're shaming the poorer people. And Paul says, that's not living out the gospel. That's not the way that Jesus would do it. Instead, and if we look at the, the principle, I think what Paul is telling them, is teaching them, is dress with love in mind. When you're getting dressed, think about other people and think, how can I care for the needs of other people in the way that I dress, in the way that I present myself? Can I make it easier for someone to follow Jesus? Can I make it harder for someone to follow Jesus? Right? If I am extremely wealthy and I'm going into a place where there are a lot of poor people and I'm displaying my wealth, that's not gonna, that's not gonna be helpful. That's not gonna be beneficial to their walk in maturity with Jesus. So I should dress with other people in mind. And if I have a choice between two things I could wear and one thing's gonna be helpful for other people and one thing's gonna be harmful for other people, well, I should choose what's helpful. Because if the aim of our charge is love, that's what I should be doing. That, and I love this. Everything that we have, everything we do is an opportunity to actually love people well. To not care about what I want or what I desire, but instead what they need, what is for their good, what will bless them and help them and encourage them and strengthen them. Dress with love in mind. And this, man, this goes for men or women, both. This is both. Even though it was a particular group of women in that scenario, this can, in our scenario, go for both men and women. Just like the quarreling, right? This could be men or women. But in this scenario, it was men that were arguing. And in this scenario, it was women that were dressing uh, high end. But for us, we can all take this to heart. And we can all learn from this. And we can all integrate this into the way that we follow Jesus. Now, before we read this next passage of Scripture... If you're new to church, or if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, what we're about to read could sound extremely offensive to you. I just want to warn you. It may also sound offensive if you've heard people abuse this text and use it to hurt people. That has happened. So I just want to warn us before we read it. But if you read it and it's hard... I just ask you to just bear with me because there's real beauty here that I think we'll be able to get to the bottom of together. So here's what it says. First Timothy chapter two, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about my history with this passage of scripture. When I was a sophomore, no, when I was a junior in college, uh, I was dating this girl and she said that she felt called to be the lead pastor of a church. And so because of this passage of scripture, I broke up with her. I said, it's clear you can't teach and have authority over a man. I, I don't know what to do with that. And so I broke up with her. That's where I was 20 years ago. And I know you're shocked that I, that I did that. And you're also shocked that I'm, I'm 40 because I don't look 40. <laughs> but I am. But yeah, that's where I was. Now, now, here's the thing. Honestly, like I was just trying to be as faithful as I could to the scriptures. 
And, and if you're honest with yourself, the clear meaning of the text to us in a 21st century America is women need to be quiet in church. Is that not what it sounds like? I mean, it sounds like that, doesn't it? It seems like that. But I wonder if it's possible that that's not what Paul is saying. And here's the thing we got to go back to. Remember that letter I wrote to Joel? If you wanted to know what I meant by everything in that letter, who should you ask? Should you ask Joel and me? Or should you ask some random person sitting next to you who doesn't know us? Yeah. But no, I mean, really think about that for a second. So when you say things like, what is the clear meaning of the text? Or what's the plain meaning of the text? That's not a bad question to ask, but it's the plain meaning of the text to whom? To a 21st century Western American who doesn't have the, um, the, 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 the Hebrew scripture knowledge that Paul did? Or is the, what the plain meaning of text to Timothy would have been? Because I can tell you what Timothy did not hear when Paul wrote this was women cannot lead, women cannot teach, and women should always be quiet in the church. I guarantee that's not what Timothy heard. Now, now how can I say that if it sounds like it's the exact opposite? So here's what we have to do. Context. Context matters. The context of where this verse sits in in the passage of scripture, but also the context of this letter in all of scripture. That matters, right? Because if what you see is God teaching one thing throughout the entirety of the scriptures, and then one or two passages saying something different, you're gonna be like, wait a second, I thought God didn't change. So let's look at the context of the entirety of the scriptures when regards to women and teaching and women and leading and women and authority. So I've got a slide for it because... What else would I do with my time, right? So here, what this is, this is a slide of a number of different women throughout the course of the Bible and the way that God raised them up to be leaders and equals with men. So for instance, Eve is a great one. Genesis chapter one, verse 26 to 28, God creates in his image humanity and it's male and female, both. It takes both men and women to fully image God. And then he commands them both, not not one or the other, both of them together to rule the world. At the very beginning, Genesis chapter one, the first thing we see about men and women is that they're supposed to rule together. We find out that in Genesis chapter two, that that Eve is called an Ezer Konegdo, right? Isn't that incredible? Don't you love that? I'm just so thankful he called her an Ezer Konegdo, right? Let's move on. What an Ezer Konegdo is... So connecto is this like equal opposite facing. That's kind of what it means. So it's like Eve is different than Adam, but equal to Adam and facing him, right? That's kind of what connecto means. Now, Ezer, Ezer is fantastic. Do you know that Ezer, this Hebrew word Ezer, other than Eve, the only time it's ever used is when it's referring to God as Israel's deliverer. So Eve is referred to like God is referred to as Israel's deliverer. So this is like, this is a high level honor, right? What about Miriam? Miriam is Moses' sister and she was called a female prophet. Deborah, 
was a judge of Israel and a female prophet. So when you say judge, this is like Samuel, this is Gideon, this is Barak, this is Jephthah, all those great names, right? Deborah was one of the judges of Israel and a female prophet. Hulda, she was a female prophet. And this is great. I love this one. Hulda, when uh, Josiah discovered or rediscovered the scriptures, the, the scriptures in the temple, he didn't know how to interpret them. And so he, he and his advisors got together and they employed Hulda, the prophetess, the female prophet, to explain them to them. Now you might think, oh, well, they got a woman to explain it because there was no one else around who possibly, possibly could have. Well, actually, Jeremiah was alive and doing ministry at the time, and so was Zephaniah. And yet, they asked Hulda to do that. What about Mary? Right, Mary, Luke uh, chapter 10, Mary sits at Jesus' feet. Now that just sounds like we're looking at her geographical position. But that was actually a phrase used for a disciple. Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet like a disciple. And Jesus didn't rebuke her. In fact, he commended her. What about Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene was the first to the tomb when Jesus was erected. He was, she was the first to see him in his resurrected body. And she was the first person commissioned by Jesus to go preach the gospel of his resurrection to his male disciples. What about Joanna and Susanna? These were women who traveled around with Jesus and his disciples and actually financially supported them. They couldn't have done their ministry without these two women. Lydia, she was a businesswoman in Philippi. She housed the church of Philippi in her house. Junia, in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 16, Paul talks, he's saying, say hello to all these different people. And one of them is Junia. Now it's hard to tell because the word used is, it's, it's a very difficult word to translate. Either she was held in high esteem by the apostles, so the apostles knew her and held her in high esteem, or she was among the apostles. In some ways, she might have been referred to as an apostle. We don't know. It's hard to tell. The word is very difficult to translate. Either way, she was at least held in high esteem by the apostles. Priscilla, this is a great one. So when you meet uh, this guy named Apollos, He's a very talented communicator, but he doesn't really know the full way of Jesus. And so these two people come onto the scene, uh, Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. Now, the first time you meet Priscilla and Aquila, they're introduced in the way that you would always introduce a husband and wife couple in that day and age, Aquila and Priscilla, the husband first, the wife second. That's the only way that anyone would have ever referred to you just because of the way that, you know, society was in that day and age. But what's shocking to me when it comes to ministry, like discipling Apollos, or when Paul is talking about them in the letter of Romans, it's always Priscilla and Aquila. That she with her husband took the lead in the discipleship of Apollos. That's the most logical that I can think of conclusion for that, that I didn't think of other scholars did. And I just called myself a scholar. Phoebe, Phoebe was a deacon. She carried the letter of Romans to the church of Rome. And the way that it worked in that day and age is when someone carried a letter and you gave the person the letter, you read it for them, and then you explained it to them. Because you would have been there. So Phoebe was there with Paul as he was writing Romans. Then he gives the letter of Romans to her to carry to the church of Rome. And then when the church of Rome had questions about the letter, she was the one there with Paul when he was writing it. And so she would have been the one who would have been able to explain it to them. So if 
From the beginning in Genesis, all the way through, we see women leading, we see women speaking, we see women teaching, like we see women doing all of these things. It would sound very odd if Paul all of a sudden said, oh no, I don't allow women to ever teach, ever lead, or, or anytime say anything in church. Wouldn't that sound weird? It would be odd because Paul himself does things differently in the book of Acts, in his letter to the church of Rome. Paul actually does things differently than that. So if, if Timothy's reading this, he would not think women can never lead, can never teach, and never say anything in church. He, he wouldn't think that. There's no way. And then think about the example Paul gives. So right afterwards, Paul gives an example of Adam and Eve. He says, well, Adam was born first, and then Eve, and Eve was deceived, you know, because she was obviously gullible. Like women are just all gullible, right? They don't know what they're talking about. Is that what Paul's saying? Let me tell you. Timothy would not have gotten that. How do I know that? Well, if you look at the book of Genesis, so Paul gives this example of Adam and Eve, and he says Adam was born, born first. And what it sounds like to my Western ears is that because he was born first, he was placed in authority. Now, if Paul wanted to argue that, he would have to do it in a different way. Here's why. In the book of Genesis, if there's one theme that you get throughout the entirety of the book of Genesis, it's that birth order does not necessitate authority. In fact, the opposite is true in the book of Genesis, and I got a slide for it. Here are all the different generations of later born that were in authority over earlier born. So first you've got humans over animals. You've got the animals created first. You've got the humans created later and the humans are called to rule over the animals. You've got the angels created first on day four and then the humans created later on day six and the humans are supposed to rule even over the angels. You've got Abel who is favored over Cain. You've got, uh, who's, Cain was his older brother. You've got Isaac, who's favored over and chosen over Ishmael, who was his older brother. You've got Jacob, who was favored over Esau and got the blessing over Esau and got to be the carrier of the promise over Esau. You've got Joseph, who's favored over his brothers and given the double portion of the inheritance. You've got Ephraim, uh, who is favored over Manasseh and given the double portion of the inheritance. And you've got Judah, who's favored over his brothers and is called to lead over even his three older brothers, in fact, what you have is in every single generation of the family of Abraham, the later born is favored, blessed, and called to rule over the earlier born in every single generation. So at the very least, it would sound very strange for Adam to say that birth order necessitates authority. Right? Right? And that would sound very odd if that's the opposite of what Genesis teaches. So for Paul to take that, now maybe he would do it in a different way, but not in that way. So if that's not what Paul's saying, what could Paul be saying instead? So think about the context. We've got these false teachers, right? They're speculating in the early chapters of Genesis where there is myth and genealogy. And what do you know? Where is the story of Adam and Eve? It's in the early chapters of Genesis where there's myth and genealogy, right? So it's likely what Paul is doing is he's doing two things. He's one, he's correcting their bad theology. He's correcting their speculation. And he's using Adam and Eve as an example of what's going on with the women and the false teachers. Now, here's the deal. At some point, as an adult, you're going to have to begin to make decisions on your own. 
at some point in time, you're going to have to begin to choose what you believe. And so it's important that you know, how do we come to the truth as we study scripture? How do we faithfully interpret scripture as people have always done throughout the history of time? And when we get there, how do we embrace it as our own? That's just what we have to do as we grow up, as we become adults. So my hope is that you would begin to utilize these tools as you study, as you make your faith your own, as you learn to get deeper into the scriptures. So there was an early pre-Gnostic heresy taught around that time. And what this pre-Gnostic heresy said was that in the story of Adam and Eve, Eve was smarter than Adam and made a good choice by eating the fruit. And because she made this good choice of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she gained special divine wisdom that she then passed on to all of the females that she had. So a pre-Gnostic heresy said that now women have a special divine knowledge over men. And I'm sure all the women are like, what will we do? That was being taught. So it's likely that this is what the false teachers are teaching. That to gain an audience with the wealthy women, they were saying, hey, y'all have special wisdom. And even though you haven't been trained, you can teach authoritatively over the church. Here, give me some money. It makes a lot of sense. And so so Paul is actually correcting that teaching and saying, here's the deal. No, no, no. Adam was born first. And if you look at the story, who was educated by God? Adam. God spoke to Adam and told him, hey, eat from all the trees except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve wasn't around when that happened. So Adam was educated, Eve was uneducated, and she was deceived by someone who had ulterior motivation. Is that beginning to sound like the scenario going on in Ephesus? I think it makes most sense that Paul is correcting this Gnostic heresy, and he's using Adam and Eve as an example of what is happening with these women and the false teachers. He's doing two things in one. He's killing two birds with one stone, because they did not have guns back then. And then Paul uses this strange phrase. He says, I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority. And and in our translation, the ESV, it sounds like he's talking about two things. The word or, I'm so sorry for all of this like head knowledge stuff. We got to do the work so that we can faithfully interpret the scriptures. But this word is a conjunctive, which means it's joining two things into one. So really it's not two things, teach or exercise authority. It's teach with authority. And what Paul, to the best that we can get to, is saying is that there's a particular kind of teaching that is only reserved for elders. So if you look at all the teachings about Paul, when he's talking about elders, he tells them, you need to guard good doctrine. You need to guard the gospel. You need to guard the faith. There are going to be false teachers. There's going to be wolves. There's going to be people who are going to try and come in and corrupt the accurate teachings of scripture. So as an elder, you're called to guard that. And to the best that we can determine as the elders of Mosaic and and, and many different scholars, 
is that Paul is saying there is an, an authoritative teaching that is reserved only for elders. And the way that we work this out at Mosaic is that on Sunday, from the stage, you are typically going to hear from elders. Right? That, that's who you're going to hear from. You're going to hear from Renault. You're going to hear from me. You're going to hear from Danny. You're going to hear from Joel. Like you're going to hear from elders. Now, at Mosaic, we believe, just like Paul and Jesus and God in the Hebrew scriptures, that there are times when non-elders can and should teach, men and women. But they should teach once they've been trained in the scriptures. Right? Elders who are trained, who are tested, and who are affirmed should guard the gospel. And sometimes other people can and should teach when they have been trained, men and women. And here's the beautiful thing here. Like we don't see it because our cultural context is so different. But Paul told Timothy, educate these women. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us. But in that day and age, women were not prioritized in the education process especially in the Jewish schooling system. There were three levels of Jewish schooling back in that day and age, and women were only allowed to go to level one. And Paul is telling Timothy, no, 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 educate these women. These women should be educated, right? People who are educated should be educated so they can use the gifts that God has given them in ways that glorify him that are appropriate within the church. Like Paul is saying, Timothy, educate these women, even these women who have been deceived by the false teachers, even these women who are causing division in the church. I want you to educate even them. That's how much Paul valued women. And then he says something that sounds incredibly strange. If that wasn't strange enough, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Is Paul saying that women are saved by having biological children? This is why I go to the, you know, to the, the baby ward at the hospital. And every time a baby's head, I'm like, oh, someone just got saved. The mom just got saved. Yes. Woohoo. It's so fun, right? Is that what Paul's saying? It's not. How do we know? Context. Paul says, Clearly, many, 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 many times all over his letters, we are saved by grace through faith. That is a gift from God because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do. Right? That's clear. And what you always do is you interpret passages that are unclear through the lens of what is clear. That's how you interpret scripture well. And that is very clear. Also, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, I wish that everyone was single like me. In fact, I urge all of you who are single to stay single. Now, if you are saved by having biological children, how could Paul say, I encourage people to stay single? He can't, right? Otherwise, he's encouraged them not to be with Jesus for eternity, right? It's not what he's saying. Once again, look at the context. So it's, the wording is actually odd. It says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, self-control. Who's the she he's talking about? Who did he just refer to? Eve. Now, how was Eve saved through childbearing? Remember the promise God gave her after they rebelled and sinned against him? He said, you will carry the seed of the Messiah of the Savior who is Jesus. And all of humanity is saved by Jesus, right? So Eve 
through her childbearing, carried the seed or the lineage of the Messiah in her body, all the way down to Mary, who had Jesus, who died to save the entire world, right? Like we are saved by grace through faith in what Jesus did. So Eve, in some respects, was saved by having biological children. And he said, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. There's another theme in Genesis. And the theme is this, that there's the, the seed of the woman, and then there's a serpent. And they are opposed to one another, right? It says that he will bite Jesus' heel, but Jesus will strike his head, right? deal a death blow to the serpent. And throughout the rest of Genesis, you'll find different characters who either align themselves with the seed of the woman or align themselves with the serpent. And so what Paul is saying here, these women who are uneducated, I want you to educate them. And I want them to continue in faith and love and holiness, i.e. continuing to align themselves with the seed of the woman, the Messiah, Jesus And I think there's language of reproduction in there because part of our sanctification process is making disciples. That we are called to reproduce spiritual children. People who, as Jesus said, obey what he says. Who align themselves in their actions uh, in allegiance with Jesus. There was a lot tonight. A whole lot tonight. My hope and my prayer is that all of us walk away with this. If you are here, God values you. If you walk out of these doors and you you interact with another human being, God values that person. God values men and God values women. So much so that he created them to be equal and to complement one another so that they could rule together. God values women so much so that in a patriarchal society that continued to oppress, to overlook, to exclude women, God continued to raise up female leaders in the Hebrew scriptures. God loves women so much that Jesus in the gospels, in a patriarchal society that oppressed, excluded women, he continued to elevate and value women, often using them as the example to follow. And then Paul expressing that exact same heartbeat of our God. He continued to value women so much so that he commanded Timothy, teach even these wayward women who have been deceived, educate them so that they can use the gifts and talents that God has given them in ways that bless and build up the church. If you're in here and you have felt devalued by the church, I am so sorry. That's not God's heart. He loves you. He values you. He has called you to be a part of his family. He's given you a gift that matters, that can help build up his church and expand his kingdom. Whether you're a guy or girl, all of us in here are valued by God so much so that he gave his own life so that you might be a part of his family. That's the God that we worship here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are so incredibly good, that you are so incredibly generous with your own self, that you would give your own life for us, that you would die for us, even people like me. Broken, sinful, rebellious people, thank you, Jesus, 
God, I pray that we'd be able to see through the lens that you look through, through the eyes of love. God, I pray that we'd be able to see ourselves the way that you see us as valuable. I pray that we'd be able to see each other as you see us as valuable, as worthwhile. And I pray that we'd be able to live out your heartbeat of love, sacrificially giving ourselves for the good of the other, no matter who they are, no matter their gender, so that we can display you to the world. We need you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.